0: Two officers get in a bit of a race, Captain Anderson of the Maryland line and Kirkwood of the Delaware line, and famously, Captain Anderson has this spontoon, it's a a spear, it's more of a badge of rank than it is, it could also be a weapon, Um, but it's more of a badge of rank, but he has this with him, and he uses it to pole vault ahead of Captain Kirkwood, and he reaches the gun first, he actually uses the spontoon to, to kill the remaining gunner who's working the piece and he captures the first gun for the Maryland troops.
1: You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution. Walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On well, today's episode we're with William Caldwell, park ranger of the Over the Mountain Victory National Historic Trail and ranger for Calpens. And you know at Kings Mountain the patriots used a swift flying column and they didn't have baggage trains hampering their movements was that the same here did morgan have a have a baggage train or did charlton have a baggage train obviously he did cuz you said the uh, british were captured and there were african american descent not sure if they were freedmen or not but mm. on the on the patriot side was was there a baggage train
0: yes but not wagons which is really funny cuz here you have daniel morgan the old wagoner himself He writes to Green, and he asks for pack saddles to be made and sent out to him because he knows how fast he has to move, the rough conditions he has to travel through. He knows wagons won't be fast enough, so he does not want wagons, but he has pack horses. Now, Tarleton, he does have... Again, at least 35 wagons. We know that because they they get down, the uh, Patriot Militia, they get down there, they capture the British baggage and they describe as the, the drivers had cut the horses loose and escaped, those guards had mounted on the horses and escaped, and they have started to burn the wagons, but 35 were taken. So it's, okay, well, how, how many were destroyed before the Patriots got there? But you see 35 wagons, all the cavalry equipment and uh, um, the things they need the tack. There's even a, a traveling forge is taken uh, for maintaining the, the, uh, the horseshoes and the different equipment. A huge haul for the Americans, not counting the 800 captured muskets from the British Army, the two uh, three-pounder cannon that are captured. Um, supply-wise, it is, a, it is a big Christmas day for Morgan.
1: So what was the actual illness that Daniel Morgan was complaining of?
0: Oh, Lord, you name it. Um, How old was he? 46-ish. His birth year is a little fuzzy. Um, but you're looking at at least rheumatism, uh, probably sciatica. Um,
1: Sitting in the saddle so long.
0: The saddle, he's sleeping on the ground, he, it's in the cold, sure. it's in the winter. And you got to just look back at his life. I mean... In the revolution he's at Quebec where he falls out of that second story window and lands on the back of, on his back on a cannon, um, probably fractured some vertebrae there. He's kept he's captured, kept in a British stone prison cell that winter in, in Canada in seventy five. You're looking at just his lifestyle. And he, he didn't talk a lot. We know like almost nothing about his early life. He's very closed lipped about that. We know he runs away from home when he's sixteen, just walks out from New Jersey, Ends up in uh, Winchester, Virginia, can't read, can't write, no money, nothing, and builds everything that he eventually has. Um, But at the end of his life, when he's kind of getting examined by this doctor, the doctor starts asking him about some of these scars and why is your toe crooked and these kind of things. And then Morgan opens up to the doctor. So that's one of the places we have this information from. But, yeah, the, the crooked toe was from kicking a guy in the head in a, in a tavern fight. So he had this, this hard lifestyle, usually in the exposed elements. I mean, shot through the back of the neck in the French and Indian War. So he had you know, missed several teeth because of that, where the ball carried him out in the front of his lip. In the months after the Battle of Cowpens, he's going to have to retire again, not for pol- politics this time, but uh, for health. He writes to Green saying that he's losing his vision for like a day or two at a time, just black, just can't see anything. Um, So he's having to lay in a cot until it comes back. Um, This is looking at some kind of nerve damage is happening in, in his spine. But yeah, he has to, he goes back to Virginia and he misses Guilford Courthouse and he hates it. He wants to be there, he wants to see it through, and all he can do is write to Green and say, here's what you should do, here's how you treat militia, try this, don't do this. But his health is just so bad in February that he just, he can't take the field anymore.
1: You you, uh, described Pickens a little bit. Uh, Describe, can you do the same thing with Morgan? Can you describe
0: him? So you're looking at a guy who he's charismatic and he knows it. I mean, how how tall is he? Uh, sure. You're looking about. I think it's roughly roughly six foot. I don't think he's like towering. He's six six one something is like he that.
1: Is he heavy like Ben Cleveland or?
0: No, I don't think we're looking at a linebacker. We're looking at more like a tight end. I'm gonna okay. say he's definitely fit. This is a guy. I mean, driving a wagon is is no light feat. You're having to control that team, sure. and that's how he's born and mm-hmm. he comes up as a farm laborer and a teamster. Mm-hmm. You're looking at even later on in the in the uh, Whiskey Rebellion, when he leads troops for the last time, he's known to have uh, confronted a tavern owner who was uh, price gouging his men, and uh, gets into a confrontation and drops the guy with a single swing. And this is like 60 something years old, Morgan just dropping this guy. So you gotta think that is his physical stature. But as far as his personality, he, he knows he's a, a celebrity. So like the night before the battle, he's going around to every militia camp he is greeting every single group that arrives he's telling them the plan he's telling them jokes he's showing off scars he's helping them polish swords uh thomas young says that morgan was doing this the entire night he he did that on purpose yes he knows who he is in their eyes and he plays up that character to get them on board with his plan to calm their nerves to put their trust in not the man Morgan, but the legend mm. Morgan. Mm. Um, but yeah, Thomas Young says he didn't that Morgan didn't sleep a single minute that night. He's oh. just all night long prepping these guys and firing them up, stirring them up, getting them ready. Um, that's who Morgan is. Well,
1: let's do a lay of the land here. So uh, you said it was Trammell that walked with him mm-hmm. across the across the battlefield before, and he, and he said he was gonna. This is where he was gonna win or die. That sort of thing, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Describe this battlefield in uh, the lay of the land. And I think in our listeners' eyes, they're going to refer back to the Patriot with Will Gibson. Right. That probably, in their mind, skews the landscape a little bit as of how it really lays out there. So do your best to describe it out here.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's always good to have a place to start from. So if you've seen the the movie The Patriot, that big last battle scene, even on the uh, scene selections, they call it the Battle of Cowpens, take that and then smooth it out a lot. You don't have these massive ridges and valleys where you can just run over and you're out of sight, but it's these gentle rolling hills that, you know, f- as you're walking along it, you don't even really notice it. Now, it's not um, a
1: hill and a vale. All right, that's not a valley right they're coming over and, and into.
0: It's just these gentle little ripples, a series of ridges. I mean, you're looking at, again, not really noticeable as you're walking it, but from a distance. If somebody was in one of the low spots and you were a quarter, half mile away, it would be hard to see them if you could see them at all. And that's kind of one of the big features is from a distance, they build on each other. And then, um, of course, comparing it to the movie, there's no giant stone ruins in the middle of the field or anything. There's just a scattering of large trees, maybe some small uh, scrub pines that started to grow up. It's bordered by thick woods, and that's the key, is there's thick woods, swampy areas, cane breaks around the entire perimeter. This is why it was a cow pen. Cattle are very free range in the 18th century Carolinas, so they would bring the cattle into that open area And they could roam around, there's enough space, there's shelter with the trees, but the woods at the outer edges are too thick for the cattle to get through easily, they wouldn't bother with it. Those cane breaks will grow year-round, that native river cane, so it's a good food source. That is going to make this perfect enclosed area. In fact, uh, Bannister Tarleton, in his memoirs, he talks about the field and how excited he was, how hopeful he was about this field, saying that rarely does the continent of North America make such a perfect field of action as this, or something to that effect. You're looking at a perfect field for cavalry to be able to swoop through easily and be able to catch the American army in those thick woods.
1: Was there not a road that was running right down the middle of this?
0: Yes, so that's another big reason for why the Americans are coming here. The road goes here. The field is kind of an oval that is a little bit crooked kind of like a banana boomerang shape a little bit and the road just follows that curve through the middle of this oblong oval open more open space so yeah there's this nice wagon road drovers road running right through the length of the field this is going to be a use to easily align morgan's troops he says okay start here on the road line up on either side of it go all the way to the woods on the edge this is your spot very easy to find
1: Knowing the, the numbers that you talked about before, give us a battle array for, for our listeners. Certainly you said you, there was uh, about 1,100 uh, militia?
0: Roughly that, yeah. So when you're looking at what Morgan's doing here, he, he understands that the, um, I mean, the British are used to being outnumbered. That's nothing new for them. They're usually able to compensate for that with the quality of their troops. Great Britain has one of the smallest armies in the world at this time, but one of the best. Um, so they're used to be an outnumbered and so what morgan's gonna do is try to find a way to use his numbers even though they're not the best quality so he's going to do what's called a defense in depth so what that means is rather than forming up in one giant formation traditionally to go against the british army he's going to form speed bumps he's going to do staggered lines of defense along the field so when the british first hit the field they're coming at it from the the field kind of runs roughly east to west and it's oval Uh, When the British enter the the right-hand, the eastern end of the oval, the first thing they're going to see is this one main ridge running across the field, this gradual, gentle rise up. On the front slope of that ridge are going to be about 175-200 of Morgan's Militia Riflemen. These guys are referred to as skirmishers or sharpshooters. Um, These are just militia with rifles who are some of the best-known shots. There's uh, Kings Mountain veterans here. There's Georgians, um, and they're s- scattered along, spread out along that ridge, and then over that ridge, in the little bit of a, the next, the next dip that would happen, and the in the ripples, um, you're going to have the main line of the militia. So this is Andrew Pickens. This is roughly a thousand militia there. This is what Tarleton talks about, topping the ridge and seeing one thousand rebel militia in front of him. And these guys cannot be seen by the British Army until they top that rise. Go over, and this is when the woods start to get a little thicker. There's more of those scattered open trees, those large trees. There's a little rise behind the militia, another drop down, and that's where you've got the Continentals, John Eager, Howard, roughly 600 men here. So this is those 290 Continentals, and then about 150 Virginia militia on either side of them, handful of North Carolinians. And then you have another rise up, This is where William Washington's cavalry were supposed to be on this next rise. But shortly after the battle commences, there's some British artillery fire um, getting a little too close. So Washington moves his troopers into a ravine, another little low area behind that rise. So each line is pretty sheltered. You cannot see the entire American army at one time as you're approaching from from the east. If
1: you go out to the battlefield today, you have the different lines of battle. Uh, set up with silhouette figures out there. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. And then uh, and people can kind of look at that terrain. That terrain really hasn't changed very much, has it?
0: Yes and no. Okay. Yes and no. So uh, the wagon road that both armies were using, chasing each other up into the battlefield, that was the highway, then that was the highway in 1970 that had been graded and leveled and paved that was highway 11 so that was used heavily That's why
1: it's so flat?
0: That's why it's nice and smooth today, yes sir. The Park Service came in and ripped up the pavement, pushed the highway over to where she is today. So that's lost some of those terrain features. But if you follow the battlefield trail, it takes you down the middle of that smooth road, but then it brings you back along the edge of the field, this little side path. And that side path away from that leveled and graded roadbed that gives you a better idea of the terrain. You get a better example of those ridges, those rolling gentle hills. There's been a few other features that have happened on the field. There was another highway that came through that had to be pushed over off the park boundary. Uh, 35 homes were removed, a gas station, a post office. It was was the place to be in the 1940s and 50s. All these houses were popping up. So the park service stepped in, uh, purchased the properties, tore off the additions, tried to bring it back to its uh, 1781 appearance. But some of those geographic features, those rolling hills, some of that has just been lost to us. That's
1: good to know. So you talked about the cannon on the British side. Cannon on the Patriot side, uh, how many of them were there?
0: Zero. No cannon. Came in with none, but left with two.
1: Very good. Spies in the camp. Any spies in the camps?
0: Yeah, so we don't have as much references like we do with like Patrick Ferguson and the King's Mountain story with his spy networks. We do know that we have a King's Mountain veteran, actually, um, Alexander Chesney. He is a local loyalist. He's one of these great guys to follow his life as an ex- a great example of what it was like to be a loyalist militia in the Carolinas. He immigrated directly from Ireland. He moves up to the Packlet River. And there's already like 20, 30-something cousins of his that have already settled in that area. That's why he moves there with his family. He serves as a loyalist scout and spy first, helping Tories escape from the committees of safety. He's forced to serve in the Patriot Army against the Cherokee, and then as a wagon driver. He is going to rejoin the loyalist militia. He's going to be Ferguson's adjutant, kind of one of his go-to guys. Um, great diary of the uh, or his recollections of the campaigns he is going to escape from captivity after King's Mountain. he's going to get down to fort ninety six hear about Tarleton going off for his services he raises a, a core of 50 locals who know the area know the roads and he's going to be Tarleton's spy master he is going to con- you know, send out all these guys every night where's morgan's army where is he going what's it going to look like and then he talks about being with the baggage train when the first british survivors start fleeing back from the battle bring the news of what's happened and they panic and flee so tarleton has those guys with him and then Morgan just has his network, his spider web of militia everywhere, every river crossing, every ford, every crossroads. These groups are making their way towards Morgan, but then he also has them bringing in information. Some of the bigger local stories is, talking about uh, women participants, is Kate Barry? There's these great family stories about how she was a, a courier and a spy for her husband Andrew Barry, a local militia captain with the Patriots. And including bringing him information about Tarleton's advances, about Tarleton's movements, which were then passed along to Pickens and Morgan.
1: What about what happened to the prisoners?
0: So these guys, you're looking at roughly 600 taken. Um, you don't see any big executions or uh, massacres like at King's Tarleton King Mountain. got away, right? He did, yeah. He and his handful of cavalry make a pretty good defense of themselves. They fight off some of Washington's troopers and are able to fall back and rejoin the British Army uh, that night. I'm sorry, the, the next day.
1: But he lost most of his men?
0: Roughly 88% casualties. Holy now, that's counting prisoners, counting prisoners. But yeah, uh, about 600 captured. And the big deal here is who they are. They are described by one British officer as being the flower of Cornwallis' army. So these guys are some of your most elite, most disciplined, most experienced troops. Uh, for example, the 7th Regiment of Fusiliers. Some of these guys have been in America since at least 1772. They were in garrisons in Quebec even before the war started. So these guys have experience that you cannot replace. So when they are lost, Cornwallis tries to rescue them. He takes off chasing after them. Tarleton himself is chasing after Morgan. He's back here just a couple days later with reinforcements, with with mounted Jaeger companies, um, these German marksmen on horseback, chasing after Morgan's trail, trying to rescue this army. Morgan knows who these guys are. He knows that he's got the brass ring. These guys are a huge prize. So he places them under the kind of the, uh, the command of Andrew Pickens and the militia. Um, they are going to actually split and Morgan is going to kind of run interference with his main army. He's going to form a block between Andrew Pickens, who's going to be a little bit further north, and the British who are trying to pursue from the south. Um, and they're going to make their way all the way up to the Virginia border. And these prisoners are going to be handed over to Virginia militia, some of whom were with Morgan and are just on their way home anyway. Um, other Virginians pick them up at the border. They're taken up into the Shenandoah Valley, uh, western Maryland, western Pennsylvania, places like Stanton, Roanoke, Winchester. And they're going to be held there in POW camps for about two and a half years. We have records of the summer of 83. These guys start to get released and paroled back to the British in New York City.
1: That was a lot different than than the aftermath of Kings Mountain. That's uh, that's yes.
0: interesting. And it's so there's a great comparison too because you have one account from a Kings Mountain prisoner who actually is given permission to go with some guards, have dinner at a tavern in Salem, North Carolina. He runs into Continental Cavalry officers who are also there. They have dinner together, and this guy records in in his journal that the Continentals, they pitied our circumstances at having fallen into the hands of the militia. So that's this, this huge disconnect here between how Continentals will view and treat prisoners and then militia will treat prisoners. Um, these guys are under a totally different jurisdiction, different command, hierarchy. They know what to do with these guys, where Kings Mountain, not so much.
1: How exactly did they lose the battle? What What actually happened right there?
0: The one thing that lost the battle for the British here is the American officers can think on their feet. That's what happened. Because you're looking at the plan that Morgan had. He had his three lines. The first two were going to fire a little bit and then fall back rally behind the third. Uh, When the third line gets engaged with the Brits, here comes those other reformed lines. This big right swing and they're going to knock the British back and they're going to win the battle. That fell apart. didn't happen the militia who fell back they get hit by british cavalry they almost get scattered they're saved by washington's dragoons thankfully but they're still really scattered the continentals end up getting flanked by some british highlanders the continentals mistakenly begin to fall back they weren't supposed to do it they begin retreating the brits are rushing and they've won the battle they're about to engage in hand-to-hand combat When the Continentals have maintained their calm and cool, they've made a new plan. John Howard, Washington, Pickens, they've all coordinated with each other in just a couple minutes. The Continentals reload as they're falling back. They halt, turn, fire, and charge point blank into the pursuing British troops. The same time the militia comes swinging around both sides of their line, William Washington brings his troopers around both sides, gets in behind the British army, crushes them. The double envelopment. Um, wasn't planned, happens on the fly, and this is why we have all of their portraits up at the Cowpens Visitor Center, because it is not just Morgan's baby. It's not his brainchild that he coordinated. He gives his officers enough leash to, when they see an opportunity, take it. So this, this comes together in the middle of combat when it's all fallen apart, this new plan is formed, and they're able to win this battle. If they had not halted and turned, if the Continentals had been caught up by those pursuing British troops hand-to-hand combat is breaking if Tarleton's cavalry had been able to be brought forward he has tried to bring them forward twice before they haven't advanced we don't know why uh, likely the courier was picked off by an American rifleman but if you have 200 British Cavalry swooping in at that point of the battle while the British infantry are charging a retreating American line it would, have been, it, would, it would have been a slaughter. Massive British victory, the death of the Southern Army, the loss of the Southern colonies.
1: You got any other little stories that came out of here?
0: <laughs> How much time you got? Oh. There's, there's so much great ones. Like there's this, uh, in fact, here at the National Battlefield, we hold a 5K every year called the Race for the Grasshopper that comes from this story. Okay. So one of the nicknames for some of these light guns is a, the, the two light three pounders is a grasshopper. During the middle of the fight, Washington's cavalry ends up encountering the horses of the Royal Artillery and their drivers who refuse to surrender. So Washington's troopers execute the horses. The Royal Artillery now has no way to quickly escape. So during the end of the fight, the British army crumbles. They've been surrounded. They're running down the field. Continentals are charging forward trying to see who can capture those two guns, the first and get the the glory of capturing an enemy piece two officers get in a bit of a race captain anderson of the maryland line and kirkwood of the delaware line and famously, Captain Anderson has this spontoon. It's a it's a, it's a, a spear. It's more of a badge of rank than it is. A, it could also be a weapon. Um, but it's more of a badge of rank. But he has this with him, and he uses it to pole vault ahead of Captain Kirkwood. And he reaches the gun first. He actually uses the spontoon to, to kill the remaining gunner who's working the piece. And he captures the first gun for the Maryland troops. So that's the race for the grasshopper. There's this great story of the militia are standing there waiting to be told to fire. The Brits are well within range, but they're being told to hold their fire, hold their fire. The pension application says that there was a British officer on a white horse, kind of like gaily dancing, prancing in front of his men, leading them on the charge. An officer calls out, who will bring down this man? And uh, this uh, militiaman, John Savage, is said to have like, gone forward, dropped to a knee, raised his rifle, fired, and the officer falls off his horse. This is the first shot shot from uh, Andrew Pickens's second line of militia. Another militiaman, when they're attacked by British cavalry, he's hit in the head. A huge chunk of his skull is chopped out, James Welchel. I mean, you're looking at saber blows are raining all around these guys. Washington's cavalry come through, chase away the British horsemen, save the militia. And James Welchel's friends, they think, oh God, James is dead. I mean, we're looking at his brains, but he's, he's alive. So they carry him to his doctor who is actually his father just nearby uh, francis welchel who melts a silver plate and is able to fit it to that gap in his skull and james survives and grows to old age and grew his hair long to cover up the silver plate in his head and um that's another big story but yeah every time you have a, a pension application you're going to find one of these little nuggets that just gives you a, a little snapshot into some of the, the, the real people, the personalities, the excitement, the drama of what they remember from being in this fight. So what's the big
1: significance of the Battle of Cowpens?
0: When you're looking at these two fights together, you have Kings Mountain in the fall of 1780, you have Cowpens in January of 81. Uh, these two together, this is this is a one-two punch right here. The whole big British strategy in winning the war in the South Was to use the local people as much as possible and then to cover these huge pieces of terrain big colonies to use their their light troops the light cavalry light infantry these veteran troops to be able to quickly move and catch the american army bring them to battle defeat them secure this big colony well kings mountain lost their locals Cowpens loses the light troops. This clips the wings of Lord Cornwallis's army. So this kind of forces him to treat his remaining army as if they were light troops. So this is what leads to him famously deciding to burn his baggage at Ramser's Mill, his personal belongings, his supply wagons, the tents, the rum, everything, and try and live off the land to quickly catch the Americans and bring them to battle. But he can't. The loss of these light troops from Cowpens is felt for the rest of the war Tarleton is going to be uh, in British service through North Carolina, Guilford Courthouse, Virginia, Yorktown, but the army is so much weaker because of the men that they've lost that they just can't replace these guys from Cowpens. This makes the future further American victories possible. And as far as the American perspective goes, this is the rallying boost they needed. You're looking at Kings Mountain, it challenged British authority. The Brits had captured South Carolina, Kings Mountain said, no you didn't, it is contested. Militia's on both sides going back at it again. Cowpens confirms this is Patriot territory. This is a Patriot stronghold. Militia come out of the woodwork, they rejoin the fight, they're invigorated, and they're going to uh, kind of ride this wave all through the next spring and summer.
1: What are some events that are happening here at the park?
0: So well, um, like we've talked about, we've got a great battlefield trail at Cowpens National Battlefield. You can walk through the field, interpretive signs explain the battle, um, and then the the January Seventeenth Battle is always commemorated on the weekend closest. So you can find out more about that, www.nps.gov slash C-O-W-P. Then you can find a list of events on there. We're also on social media, things like Facebook and Instagram. And there's all kinds of events here throughout the year as well.
1: So if people came here, what would you want them to take away from their visit here?
0: I think one of the one of the best things to point to is how small this battle is. You're looking at a battle that took less than 30 minutes. You have roughly a 1,000 on each side. You're comparing this to some of these big fights up north, Monmouth, Brandywine, you know, 10, 15,000. Numbers wise, this is a skirmish. This is a large skirmish. This takes 30 minutes in a little cow field in the backwoods of South Carolina, but this sent ripples throughout the revolution. Even at, at the time they felt this, there's one, a British writer who just after the war, Charles Stedman, he talks about how all of the other defeats that Cornwallis is going to suffer the rest of the war can be traced back to Tarleton's defeat here at Calpens. So this is going to have huge effects all all across the, the revolution. But then also looking at it from more of a modern interpretive look, Tarleton did nothing wrong here. He had the best forces. He had the best information possible. He was one of the best officers. Never lost a battle in his own opinion. And he does everything textbook perfect at this battle and gets whooped. And this is one of those big lessons. is like even if you are the best, something can always happen. Even if you are going up against the best. If you're trying to, you know, I, I don't have the materials. I don't have the training. I don't have the conditions. There's no way I can win this. But if you just try your hardest and think outside the box, find a new resource, find a new approach, you can give any problem a devil of a weapon.
1: So personally, why does history fascinate
0: you? I have been a i I'll I'll go ahead and I hate the term history buff, but I'll use it. Why do you hate the term history buff? I don't know. It just means so little. It's (laughs) like, okay, I'm a history buff. (laughs) You can just say I like history. It's okay to say that. When you're looking at these events, you know it's so easy to get caught up in something else like we talked about. You keep asking about stories, fun stories, little stories. That's what history is, is stories. So when you are able to dig in and find these stories, so often we talk to visitors who are like, oh, you know, I, I never liked history in school. I never learned about this in school, or, or maybe I didn't, I just wasn't listening, ha ha ha. History is always pointed to as years and dates, years and dates, treaty, war, treaty, king, that's not what history is history is the people and what they did and what the average person did to bring about big changes in their world which directly impacts our world so just by studying the stories and the people it kind of gives more meaning to our lives it's like yeah you may not be a president a king or sign a treaty but what are you doing that is bringing about changes that you may not even be able to think about right now but what are you doing that can bring about a change that is gonna make these ripples and make a big impact later on? Um, like how many militia were involved in these campaigns in these battles that we may, we may never know their names. We may never know what they did, but they did something and we're here because of it. So it's just remembering that history is people, history is stories and making sure those people and stories are remembered and shared.
1: So why do you think the every, everyday man took up arms against the king?
0: oh i don't think he did you're looking at so that's again when you look at the people and why they were fighting why they did what they did so few of them care at all about the king so few of them care about parliament and taxes Um, there are so many personal reasons why they are doing these things Uh, for example we've we've talked a lot about thomas young Uh, thomas young doesn't get involved in the war until his brother is murdered And then he vows to avenge him and he says he killed 100 loyalists by the end of the war. There are so many different reasons why somebody would get involved in the fight and take up arms and support the Patriot cause. Unfortunately, some of those reasons are are personal gain. Um, We have complaints from the uh, inhabitants of 96 District, petitions to General Greene and uh, General Pickens, saying that they are being looted and plundered by patriots from over the mountain, who are only coming and stealing and taking things back home. But but they're involved. They're they're fighting, in their eyes, uh, but it's for personal gain. So you have to really look at each individual person. Some of these people were able to identify. You know, we want to. Exercise more independence, and this is how we can do that. Others said, "No, we need to be independent from the the tyranny of the planters. We need to be free of the the, the rice kings, and that's why they're going to fight for the loyalists." And there's just uh, so many personal reasons. It's it's you, you can't say there's just one reason why the average person did it, because to each average person, it's their own personal reason. Very
1: good. Well, thank you so much, Wayne.
0: Of course. Appreciate it.